Hey, this is John Fanta from Fox College Hoops and Big E Shootaround. You're listening to the best podcast on the Seton Hall Pirates, Left Coast Pirates. Horton will try to go all the way. seconds to go down by two. Here's Whitehead. Gardemeyer Chefu gets the step into the lane. Goes to the bucket. Layup. Rolls around and in. And a foul! Whitehead ties the game! Pow! From Trenton! Woo! What Trenton makes, the world takes! From just west of the Ward Place Gate in San Diego, California, he is Mike Deziri, class of 2001. I am Tom Kaharski, class of 1997, and we are Left Coast Pirates. He is a sports broadcaster and site expert at Storm the Paint, the St. John's Red Storm news analysis and opinion site that is part of the fan sided network. Please welcome to Left Coast Pirates, Kevin Connolly. Kevin, how are you this evening? I'm great. Thanks for having me, guys. Really looking forward to it. No, our pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for being on the show. All right, let, let's get right to it. Uh, St. John's had a rough one last night. Loss at Creighton and puts the Johnnies now at two and three in conference play. You know, I was looking back at their schedule so far. Looks like they took care of business at home versus DePaul and Georgetown, but they've had some tough setbacks on the road. They got that 19-point second-half turnaround against Providence that led to a loss. They had the heartbreaking OT game against UConn when it looked like Champagne had kind of ended them with a dagger three-pointer with under two seconds to play. And then you have the disappointing no-show last night at Creighton. You know, I know some nights you're going to run into a Creighton team that shoots the lights out from three like they did. Team of 27 is tough to beat, but they also got out-rebounded by 19. How surprised were you by this performance? Well, I, I was definitely surprised by the rebounding numbers, maybe not so much because that's been an issue for St. John's all year. I mean, you can just go back and look at games against, I mean, Indiana, Kansas, um, the, the UConn and Providence games, they get destroyed by prominent big men down low. Um, but this was a game, it was kind of a prove-it game to me for St. John's. I mean, you can draw positives out of the U- UConn and Providence games. Um, obviously, you win against DePaul and Georgetown, two uh, lower-level teams in the Big East, they'll say, although I think DePaul is is much better than in years past. Um, but, yeah, I was really surprised that they were just non-competitive, really, from the jump last night. I thought it was a game that um, if they really wanted to start a NCAA tournament resume, this was a game – this was a good game to start with, and, and they just absolutely fell flat from tip-off. Well, as Mike mentioned, it seems like the Johnnies have had a rough start here, but, you know, some folks also – had questioned St. John's non-conference schedule. Uh, you know, they dropped their only two significant challenges uh, to Indiana and Kansas, and they also had a setback to lowly pit. You know, granted, it was without Julian Champagny, but how much ground does Mike Anderson's team need to make up in conference play based on these missed opportunities? I think it's a lot. I mean, I'll give the pit game a little bit of a break because Champagny wasn't there, but this team still should be good enough to beat Pittsburgh without him. And they really were. It was just like a, a last couple minute collapse. Um, 
The Indiana game, I mean, Champagny did everything possible to try and win that game. I think he had 32. Um, and then he absolutely caught fire and brought them within a possession of Kansas. And, and they fell flat again there. So, I mean, if you're looking at Big East play, I mean, you still have two with Villanova, two with Seton Hall. Um, Providence is still left on the schedule. There's a lot of quality teams still left on the schedule, but um, starting to get late early in Queens. All right, let, let's stick on Champagne here, right? I mean, obviously, he's been nothing short of spectacular this year. You know, as you mentioned, just tearing it up in the, in the games that they've won and some of the games that they've hung around in. But in the Providence and Creighton losses, he's actually struggled. You know, is this attributed to just a couple off nights or did Cooley and McDermott like actually find something strategically to kind of, you know, hold them back or, or shut them down? No, I think it's just a couple of off nights. You even saw it early in the non-conference schedule against the teams that they would just kind of scrape by um, just shots that you're missing at the rim that you just don't miss often. And um, it's happened against Providence and Big East play. It's happened against Providence um, and now against Creighton. But I, I think, the team is poorly constructed in this manner is that when he's not there, I mean, and it, the prime example is the Pittsburgh game. It, it, they're so much easier to defend because sometimes he could command at least two players uh, paying attention to him. And then that opens up your driving lanes for Posh Alexander. That opens perimeter shot for Dylan Adewusu, um, Aaron Wheeler, so on and so forth. But when he's off and teams don't have to uh, have two, uh, two set of eyes on him, then they're so much easier to defend. And I think that's what you saw in part last night. And that's what you saw against Providence. I mean, the team did the best they could. They were up by seven early in the second half and Champagny couldn't kick it into gear. And then Providence got going down low foul trouble for St. John's hurt them. Um, but when Champagny is off, St. John's is by far so much easier of a team to defend. Well, there's definitely some credence to that statement. You know, Posh goes five of 14 in that pick game. And I got to assume that most of the responsibility fell on his shoulders if Champagne has to leave the floor even for a breather or two, what does St. John's need to do to kind of stay on track? Well, it's then it becomes like a Posh Alexander and Dylan Adai Wusu show. You, you saw even in the game against Georgetown. I mean, they got up 20 midway through the second half. Uh, Mike Anderson put Champagne and Posh on the bench. And within two minutes, Georgetown was, was within seven. I mean, you have to give these guys a breather. But I think Mike Anderson has to be a little more strategic. And when he gives Champagne a breather, um, just because it, it seems that everything falls apart when he comes off the floor. Well, Champagne is a spectacular player, but, you know, St. John's itself plays a fun style. I mean, Mike Anderson is known to get that pace of play going, and and, and the Johnnies have, have come through with it. I mean, they're third in the nation in assists at almost 19 a game, 11th in the nation in steals at 10 a game, 14th in the nation in scoring. So they, they do put the ball in a basket, and and Pasha Alexander and Dylan Adai Wusu, like you mentioned, have been leading this charge in this area, combining for 25 and a half points and almost 10 assists per game. How have their games developed in their sophomore campaigns? They've taken tremendous leaps. I'll say um, Dylan Adai Wusu, especially his outside shooting, has really progressed. Um, he's still very tenacious when driving to the hole, and he's gotten to be a much better passer this season. Pasha Alexander. I thought we were going to see much more of a jump. His outside shooting numbers still aren't great. I mean, he has the ability to hit a couple of outside jumpers, um, but it's not as consistent as I thought it would be. And he's, he's still tenacious when attacking the rim defensively. He still gets under your jersey and everything. Um, but just offensively, I think he tries to make things a little bit 
too difficult at the rim. I think he tries to initiate contact and draw fouls a lot more than he should. And it feels like every time he's driving to the hole when he has a lane, he ends up on the ground. And now sometimes he'll make those spectacular layups. But just sometimes I think him and even the team, St. John's, I've never seen a team miss more layups before in a season in my life. Um, they just make things, they make things a lot more difficult than they need to be. So I would assume that St. John's fans knew that they would ultimately rely on the big three coming into this year. But, you know, it, there was also expectations for this supporting cast made predominantly of the transfers because most of the guys that were the supporting cast last year all transferred out. And people had thought that, you know, St. John's had upgraded in this space to bolster the roster. How would you evaluate the performances specifically in the front court of Aaron Wheeler and Joel Soriano in terms of what they're getting from the transfer pieces on this roster? Well, if you asked me two weeks ago, I would say both were major disappointments. But um, ever since St. John's came back from their COVID pause, Aaron Wheeler has been phenomenal. He's found his outside shot. He's been their best forward outside of Champagny. Um, he'll, he'll rebound. He can block shots. He's great in the system because um, he's lean enough where he can get up and down the floor. Um, now, yeah, there are some issues with him defending um, bigger players in the post, like a, um, an Adama Sanogo or a Nate Watson. But Wheeler's been phenomenal over the past uh, five, six games for St. John's. Joel Soriano, I thought he was turning a corner. I, I didn't think he got any favors with the schedule. Um, playing Sonogo and Watson basically right out of the gates in Big East play. Um, he didn't fare well against Trace Jackson Davis. He didn't fare well against David McCormick. Um, so that, that's that been an issue. And then last night, um, it just wasn't good. I mean, Ryan Kalkbrenner, don't get me wrong, good player for Creighton, uh, but he's certainly not built like a Watson or a Sonogo. So I thought Soriano should have done better against him. But, I mean, it was just a completely off night for the team. So if, if you ask my opinion right now, uh, Wheeler's definitely trending up. And Soriano, I mean, after last night, definitely trending down. Kevin, trending up is an understatement. Over his last four games in Big East play, he's shooting 53% from distance. Are we to expect that number to continue? I think it's hard to sustain that kind of a number. Um, but definitely, I think he's he's probably one of the second or best third uh, scorers on the team that can generate their own shot. Um, he was instrumental in their comeback against UConn before – um, the final five seconds of that game, he hit a big corner three um, to bring St. John's within one. Um, he was really good against Georgetown, even though his shooting numbers weren't great. And he was the best player on the floor uh, for St. John's against Creighton, although that's not saying much. You know, Mike brought up expectations. So let's stay there for a second. You know, coming into this season, there, there was a bit of a hype about or hype surrounding St. John's. A lot of pundits were talking about this was going to be their move. And, it, you know, Mike Anderson in his third year usually makes a tournament appearance. You got Julian Champagne, who's, who was predicted to be in a first team all Big East. Posh Alexander on the second. The team itself was picked fourth in the coach's preseason poll. But, you know, as, as far as the results have been kind of middling at best, I mean, is it fair to say that if this team doesn't make the tournament, that Mike Anderson's team has regressed in year three? I, I think it is fair. I mean, there were significant NCAA tournament expectations coming into this year, not only just to get to the NCAA tournament, but to win a game. I mean, you can you can make the valid case that Julian Champagne is the best player in the Big East. I know Seton Hall fans might not agree to that, but there, there's a valid argument to be made. Um, Posh Alexander was coming off of winning the freshman of the year and the defensive player of the year. Um, Dylan Adaibusu, you were expecting that jump in his sophomore year. And then you were adding a bunch of 
players who had high major experience, Aaron Wheeler, Montez Mathis, Steph Smith, who played for a Vermont team that was really good. Um, so, yeah, I think if this team doesn't figure it out and figure it out quickly, there definitely could be uh, – it definitely would be looked at a failure this year. Kevin, you're thinking of another team's fans. We we know how good Julian Champagne is. As a matter of fact, last year we – we had conversations that he got a little bit of a hose when Biggie's player was announced. So don't pair this with that brush, Kevin. Come well, on, man. Don't, don't bring that up to me because I, I made my opinions strongly known about a try player of the year. That didn't sit well with me, given three guys the Biggie's player of the year. Well, it was politics, right? We're sitting there kind of talking about it in our kind of end of the season recap. And it's kind of like it's easy to give the Villanova guys the nod. I guess there were enough votes to get Sandro into a three-way tie. And maybe the coaches were thinking, all right, we give Champagne the most improved player. I think he made first team, if I'm not mistaken, right? And then you just set him up to come back as preseason player of the year, not knowing that Colin Gillespie was going to come back for another season after he injured himself, right? Exactly. Um, Yeah, and I think – I think Champagne and Zach Fremantle from Xavier got co-most improved. I, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of how the conference um, dished out its uh, uh, postseason awards last year. There was a, there was a lot of co's in there, and, even, and one you know, try. Mike and I would have been happy with Sandro and Julian sw- swapping it out. That would have been fine. You know, a little co-player of the year there. Stop it. You were not getting Nova away guys. with the Villanova guys not getting in the ah, mix. Forget Come these on. Nova guys. They're over, overrated. <laughs> Kevin, let's kind of refocus now and kind of get into this head-to-head matchup. Due to Seton Hall having to pause previously, Seton Hall and St. John's are both now forced to play this back-to-back in order to kind of fit this game into the schedule and not have to deal with the, the forfeit or the cancellation that they were faced with earlier in the season. And as Pirate fans know, Kevin Willard has never met a schedule that he hasn't complained about, right? What's Coach Anderson's reaction to these changes that uh, St. John's has to face in the back-to-back? And also, they have to face a little mini stretch from February 1st to February 5th where they have to face three games in five days. You know, what's Anderson's stance on all of this? Well, Mike Anderson, anytime he hasn't been, he hasn't liked being uh, criticized for his non-conference schedule. Uh, he hasn't really given an opinion on this uh, two games in, th- in three days. Um, but now I, I just will say one thing. I know this is going to, it gets tabbed as Seton Hall having to cancel the game because of COVID. St. John's would have had a cancel because they were going, that was, uh, this game was scheduled two days after the pit game when Champagny tested positive. And then the whole team went into quarantine and didn't play again until January 5th. So this game was going to get canceled no matter what. But, um, yeah, Mike Anderson really hasn't said anything about um, liking or not liking having to play the, the two games in three days against the same opponent. But um, one thing I'm really interested, UConn and Butler are doing the same thing. I think they played on Tuesday, and they're playing again tonight in Indiana. So, I mean, UConn handled Butler um, at home, and now they go on the road. So I'm kind of trying to base my – predictions of uh, these upcoming two games for St. John's and Seton Hall on the uh, UConn and Butler series that's going on right now. Well, that was going to be my next follow-up question. I mean, you're you're normally seeing pro sports, whether it's, you know, basketball or hockey, when the two teams have to play that back-to-back and then travel to the other team's site, it is really hard to beat an opponent two times in a row, regardless of the quality of that opponent. Do we see that similar kind of situation here? I know you want to use uh, the other game as a litmus test or an evaluation standpoint, but I got to assume when you see the opponent once they're, you know, you're familiar with all their quirks or all the tricks that they might have up their sleeve and certain matchups or plays that you want to key on. 
there's going to be no surprises in the second return matchup. I agree. Um, I think it's imperative for St. John's to win the first, to be honest with you, because then you're, you're going to Walsh in an all-students game. It'll be a hostile environment. Um, place would be jumping. Um, and St. John's has to split them, whether they win at the Garden or they win in Walsh. St. John's has to split, at least, at least split these games if they want any shot at the postseason. Um, and I think it would be easy to do the first um, in terms of that. So uh, I think it's imperative uh, St. John's tries to split. They win the first one on Saturday. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not going to be surprised by anything unless one of these coaches has been holding something up their sleeves for the entire season and wants to debut it in the second game. So, so I agree with you. I, I think a split is, is realistic, and I think both teams absolutely need at least a minimum of a split. But you got Seton Hall fans that are screaming for two wins to get back on track after losing at the Paul and Marquette. Which team is hungrier? do you think, or which team is more desperate in this matchup? That's, that's a really good question. I mean, I would have said Seton Hall if you asked me 25 hours ago, but after St. John's just got absolutely embarrassed by Creighton, I think they're going to come out hungry. I think they're going to come out motivated, but then you look at Seton Hall and they're sitting on for a whole week, they're sitting on two straight losses. Um, It's that, that's a really good question. I don't know if there's a, a right or wrong answer. Um, but I'm going to say St. John's will come out maybe as the hungrier team just because how bad they got beat. And Seton Hall was – I know their performance against uh, DePaul wasn't great, even though it was a, a close game at the end. And I know they got hosed in the final couple of seconds against Marquette. Um, and certainly they're not going to be uh, – they probably haven't taken kindly to that. But um, I, I'll just go with St. John's just because how bad they got beat the other night. All right. So, you know, earlier, Kevin, you mentioned that the Johnnies have a hard time of scoring – when Julian Champagne is either not on the court or if he's struggling. But is there another particular matchup to look out for, or does it just come down to that? I think, I mean, call a spade a spade. I think it does come down to that, but I'm really excited to watch the guard matchup. Um, Posh Alexander, Bryce Aiken. And for, for St. John's, I mean, a key, a key to victory in every game for them is how do you do on the glass? I mean, Seton Hall has a couple of, of players. I mean, you look at uh, Big Ike down low. Tyrese Samuel, Miles Kell, uh, they can all get after it on the glass. Even Jared, Jared Roden, um, they can all get after it on the glass. And St. John's has really been at a disadvantage this year when Joel Soriano has been out on the court. Um, Isaiah Nywees had some good minutes. Um, he rolled his ankle a little bit against Providence and hasn't played much since. Um, and sometimes they'll go small, quote-unquote small, and play Aaron Wheeler at the five, Champagne at the four, um, Posh at the one, uh, Dave Wusu at the two, and then fill in your three. It'll typically probably Montez Mathis. Steph Smith has given you minutes off the bench. Um, one thing I will say, I know you didn't ask, but the loss of Rafael Pinzon, um, Zach, report, Zach Brazilli reported uh, he's out indefinitely. He had COVID, still recovering, um, and it, no one knows when he's going to be out on the court. That's your backup ball handler. That's your backup point guard, a freshman. Um, I think that's been a big loss for St. John's more than people um, have realized. Well, I know Seton Hall's got a bunch of depth, but they haven't really kind of leveraged it in terms of pressing the other team's primary ball handler until they've gotten into some of these desperate situations to try to erase double-digit deficits. That was kind of on display in that DePaul game. You mentioned the matchup of Aiken versus Posh. Both tend to be uh, more on the smaller side in stature. If Kadari Richmond is having the kind of game that he had against UConn, could that be a difficult matchup for Posh even though he's known for his defensive prowess? I think it is because Kadari Richmond, he, he, he's a bigger, longer guard. 
Um, and if he has a game like he did against UConn, I'm not sure St. John's has a chance um, in either game uh, in these in that three games three day stretch. You know, earlier you said that the Johnny guards seem to always go down on the drives. You haven't seen Bryce Aiken play then. Wait till you see this game. We're going to be all over the court. All yeah, seriousness, though, Kevin, give us two keys why the Johnnies win this game. St. John's wins one of the games against Seton Hall if Champagny is a star and if they're able to control either Roden or Aiken. If both of them go off, again, I think it's really tough for St. John's uh, to win this game. I think they have to try and control one of them. Um, and then Ch- Champagny has to snap into a Champagny form. He can't have another outing like he did against Creighton or even like he did against Providence for St. John's to have a chance. All right, we're putting you on the spot. What's your prediction? Are they going to be happy out in Queens or, or are we going to be dancing in South Orange? I think St. John's wins at the Garden and Seton Hall wins in South Orange. I think they split. All right, Kevin, I, w- I want to challenge you here for a second because I, I wish it was reversed. I- I'm concerned from a Seton Hall perspective that if they lose the game at the Garden, now it's been three in a row. The psychology of kind of the everything kind of going off the rails, you know, the, not being able to get the ship back on track. Could that leak into the next follow-up game two nights later, regardless of the home environment? If, if Seton Hall doesn't get off to a good start in that game and they're known for getting off to slow starts, could the psychology start creeping in of, you know, we're on a bad stretch here? I, I don't know if it's just an easy split just by saying so. I agree with you. And also the point that I've talked to a couple of people with is if St. John's wins the first game in the garden, they're going to South Orange playing with house money because no one really expects them to win. They would get their first quad one win of the season, which would be Seton Hall. I mean, they'd only be one, one in five in quad one games, but you, you would feel like they would be playing with house money. Although I don't think if you ask the players or coaches that they would agree because St. John's goes to Villanova uh, that next weekend, that next Saturday, um, after going to Seton Hall. So, um, now St. John's by no means is anyone saying that they have to sweep this. Um, like you said, people, Seton Hall fans are saying, but people around St. John's are saying they definitely have to split it. But I, I agree with you. I think if, if St. John's wins the first game, Seton Hall is now on a three game skid, uh, and that doubt's starting to creep in because, um, I don't know if you guys have, have touched on this on your podcast, I mean, the Seton Hall, quote-unquote, signature non-conference twins. I don't know if those are signature anymore. I mean, <laughs> Michigan, Kevin, Mitch, Michigan, 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 let me have my two minutes. Kevin, what are you doing? I got a two-minute <laughs> segment on every episode where I break down their resume, and Tom's like, you got two minutes. Shut up, move on. Stop talking about Michigan. I go, Tom, every episode, Michigan goes in the wrong direction here. Um, <laughs> and, now, and now Texas is doing the same thing. Absolutely. They, uh, Texas should have been out of the top 25 prior to this week. If you ask me, um, let me take it one step further. You got St. John's who have lost three out of their last four and their only win being against a, you know, a, probably the worst team in the conference. I can't believe it's calling Georgetown now and their program, the worst team in the conference, but that's reality. St. John's now loses that first game at home and it's four out of five. Can they muster up enough, you know, moxie to bounce back and get off the skid because they're looking ahead going, uh Oh, now what? Villanova, Seton Hall, four out of five. Is this six out of seven? Can they come over or overcome the psychological hurdle? Yeah, I mean, if St. John's loses the first game, I think you're going to see desperate of all desperate teams come to South Orange because, like you said, Villanova's next. Um, I I don't know the schedule right off the top of my head, but I know Providence is down the line. Providence might be that next game. Um, Then you go to Georgetown, go to Butler. That's been a house of horror. horror. Xavier, two games with Xavier's coming down the pike. 
Um, yes, if, if St. John's loses this first game, I think you're going to see a really desperate team. And I mean, St. John's fans, um, it, it's always hot and cold with them. I mean, they win. They think they're, they're the greatest team of all time. They lose like they did against Creighton. They want everybody fired. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, it, it's not um, the, the psyche and the temperature of the, the fans in Queens are, is reaching a boiling point right now. I think that would tremendously come down if they win Saturday. And then, again, like I said, I think they'd be playing with a little house money um, come Monday. All right, last follow-up question. Let's say it goes off the rails for St. John's. Mike Anderson has never had a below 500 season in his career. It could easily kind of go south. And if it were to go south, could Mike Anderson all of a sudden be on the hot seat after three years? No, no. They just gave him an extension after last season. um, They gave Turgeon an extension. They gave Turgeon an extension down to Maryland. So – that, I don't know true. about extensions. That's they true, but Mar- Mar- yeah, Maryland's <laughs> a little different than St. John's and vice versa. Um, no, I, I, I don't see any way um, unless the absolute bottom falls out and it becomes um, like a dumpster fire in Queens. Um, I don't see any way Mike Anderson gets fired after this year, win, lose, or draw. I can't believe Mike steals my question. I'm, I'm famous for asking folks if so-and-so's getting fired or so-and-so's getting fired, and Mike steals my question. It was the end but of the episode, I'm... and you hadn't asked it yet. It was the end of the episode. <laughs> what are we supposed to do? <laughs> Kevin, we can't thank you enough for joining us on such late notice. You were fantastic. We really appreciate you, and we wish you nothing but the best. Guys, thanks a lot for having me, and uh, best of luck to your Pirates Uh, these upcoming games and and the rest of the year. Kevin Conley, everybody. Okay, Mikey, we just heard what Kevin Conley thought. What do you got? You want me to give just the one prediction for Saturday, and then we'll come back and and recap uh, over the weekend like we normally do? Or do you want me to back up? The last time you started looking down the road, all of a sudden there was a COVID pause. So, no, I want one game. Give me one game. That's not what I was saying. Kevin just gave us a two-game outlook. The whole episode was about a two-game outlook. All right. One game. Everyone says that Seton Hall's home away from home is MSG. I don't know, Tom. I don't know on this one. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little nervous. I, I'm with Kevin from the standpoint of whoever comes out ahead in this one psychologically takes a huge step for the one after that. I think Seton Hall needs to right the ship right away. So if this season is going to be special, if this season has tournament aspirations and uh, potentially getting back on track to challenge for the top of the Big East standings. I don't know if they can get a conference title out of it anymore, but you know what? They got to get a win. And Kevin Willard has proven that when their backs are up against the wall, whether we doubt them or not, or we think that things are broken philosophically in the locker room or on the court with the offense, Seton Hall has found a way to win. So I'm going to say that he pulls another rabbit out of his hat and finds a way to get this first one, which is going to be the hardest of the two at MSG against the rival St. John's Red Storm? Well, you know, Mike, I, I, I think this. I don't think this is going to be the best team we're going to face. I don't think this is going to be the signature win we are looking for. But I will tell you this. This will tell us what kind of team Seton Hall is. They went through a really bad week last week with two disappointing losses, one total collapse against a team that they shouldn't have lost to, and one outcome that was determined by a horrendous foul call. We're going to see what happens. Can they pull themselves up off the ground? This is the time when they got to do it. 
So, so we asked Kevin for, you know, one key matchup or one thing that has to happen. What, what do you think has to happen for Seton Hall to get the victory? Give me an element that we have not seen from them in recent play improve going forward here. I think it's all about the defense, Mike. I don't know that we've seen them play a completely good game of defense. I don't know that Miles Kale has played a good, good, any good defense in the past three weeks. I think Ike's block shots are erasing a lot of mistakes. I think if we play defense like we did earlier in the season, we win this game. I'm going to say pace of play, and I think it also comes back to the defense. I think if we force St. John's to play in the half court and we don't let them play a game in the 80s and run up and down the floor with you know 10-plus steals a game and allow us to get sped up, because let's be honest, we have not been clean in transition, constantly turning the ball over. We have taken some bad shots on the offensive side, uh, specifically from deep, that lead to easy run-out opportunities with long rebounds. I think if we play more efficiently on the offensive side and just don't take bad shots, I'm not saying the offense is going to be fixed, but if we can get back and play solid half-court defense and make this a game in the mid-60s, low-70s, I think pace of play dictates the outcome more than anything else. All right. Well, hey, I'm excited. They're going into MSG. You get to sit down on Saturday and watch that game, Michael. So, hey, let's go back and say go Pirates. Go Big Blue. Thanks for joining another episode of Left Coast Pirates. Be sure to follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your other favorite listening platforms. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter with our handle at Pirates, And don't miss out on any of our previous episodes that include interviews with Seton Hall legends, Danny Calandrillo, Mark Bryant, Andrew Gaze, Shaheen Holloway, and many others. For Tom Kaharski, I'm Mike Desiri, and you've been listening to Left Coast Pirates.